Hey everybody, Matt Camp here with Deal Machine. Uh, we're proud to team up with Tom Zeeb here to give you guys a ton of free stuff. So our goal here is to give you the free toolkit to get out there and start finding off-market deals. Um, we're proud to say we're the highest rated and most reviewed app out there to go find off-market deals. And we've had over 10,000 deals done using the Deal Machine app. Now, when you download it, you can get it for free at tomzeeb.com slash dealmachine, and you'll get a seven-day free trial with that. And jumping into Deal Machine, you'll be able to go out there, start driving for dollars, start pulling lists, start finding the most motivated sellers in your market. And then you can start marketing to them directly. You can skip trace, you can send them postcards, you can knock on their door. There's a variety of things that we can help you out with using our technology. And then from there, you can actually evaluate the deals, You know, comp it, use our AI assistant to help you out there as well. You really get the full toolkit to go from you know having no real estate experience to landing your first deal using technology. So it's tomzeeb.com slash deal machine for that free trial. With it, if you go through that link, you're going to get $30 free in marketing credits that cover a couple hundred free skip traces or 50 free postcards, give you everything that you need to start reaching out to sellers. So um, get out there and happy deal finding. The big thing to remember here is banks don't want real estate. They're not in the business of owning real estate. Banks are in the business of loaning money. That's what they want. They don't want to be a landlord. Yeah. I don't want to be a landlord. Banks certainly don't want people calling them when the toilet is stopped up at midnight. You know what I'm saying? Right. So <laughs> banks don't want the property. They just want money. Welcome to the Get Traction Podcast. If you are ready to learn exactly what it takes to become a real estate entrepreneur, this is the show for you with your host, founder of Traction Real Estate Mentors and president of the Traction Real Estate Investors Association, Tom Z. Linda Locasio, how are you? Awesome, Tom. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. Ah, thanks for asking me. It's exciting, really. Good, Linda. So I asked you to be on the show. You're in New Orleans. You're a real estate investor for one or two years, I think. And you do, you do with a lot of rentals, and I, that's what I want to talk about today. So kind of that's a short introduction, but give us a deeper introduction. Who is Linda Locasio? Well, I, I guess from a business perspective, yeah, I'm a, I'm a real estate investor. I'm also a real estate broker, which you know means I have my own company, and uh, I um, so I've been investing in, in real estate probably since 2003, I believe. I used to buy rentals, and uh, then my husband passed in 04, and then in 05, I discovered the New Orleans RIA. And man, did that open up a world to me. It was just amazing. I mean, I was just just amazed at what all you can learn, you know, from, from these RIA groups. Because, you know, prior to that, I'd be a typical real estate investor. You put 20% down and you have your little rental properties and you don't even necessarily know anything about numbers, you know. But anyway, so since then, I've been, I was the first female president of the New Orleans RIA and served for two or three years, I believe. And, uh, and I'm still on the board to this day and uh, in the capacity of um, I do the programming and I schedule the speakers and such. Gotcha. So yeah. what, what changed that you said you used to put 20% down on the property, but once you got some more education and ideas, how did you start buying properties then? Well, I mean, <laughs> I went through the gamut. Of course, every speaker that came through had a different idea of how yeah. you can invest in real estate, which just exploded my mind, just exploded <laughs> my mind. I had no idea. So, you know, I started out then as maybe a typical investor beyond that as far as flipping properties, which I love doing. 
I love flipping properties, just taking something that's a piece of junk and making it just beautiful and, and then selling it to a family who loves it and loves living in it. That is extremely satisfying. It really is. But it's also very capital intensive and it can be risky, um, <laughs> you know, especially if you're in, uh, you know, market like 07 and 08 when a lot of us got caught. So, you know, and I still had my rentals during all that time as well. And, you know, handling those rentals as a single female without my husband, it, you know, it's not that it was difficult, but it's like that bunch of kids and you know, they call you for every little thing. And, and I, you know, I don't want to be somebody's maintenance person. They, they call me every time their toilet stopped up or their air conditioner doesn't work. I hated that. Uh-huh. I hated that. How'd you solve so, it? What's that? How did you solve that problem? Well, how I solved it was learning how to buy real estate. Well, learning how I I wound up selling all of those rentals because they were all duplexes and I bought single family homes. I bought them subject to the existing mortgage and I did all lease options. That's all I do now, lease options. It's just, you know, so much better than a typical rental. So for people that may not be familiar with the ins and the outs of lease options, give us a... Give us an overview. Okay. And why uh, it so much better. Oh, well, number one, let me let me preface it by saying that if you do a lease option on the house, you have to be prepared to sell it if the lease option buyer exercises their option to buy. Okay. So so it's not like a rental and that, you know, you don't have all the control over when necessarily you're going to sell it. But that being said, most lease option deals don't work out. I think the percentages are in the high 80% as to that most lease option buyers do not exercise their option to buy. And so therefore they either move on or they stay on if you allow them to. And, you know, and there's some advantages to that. But and go the, ahead. the lease option buyer, so people understand, is instead of a tenant, which is just renting your property, you're putting in a tenant who also has the right to exercise an option to buy your property. So they're a tenant. Right. And so right. the theoretically, the intention is that your tenant will buy the property from you. Right. And you're just saying it just doesn't always happen, but at least they have the mentality that they plan on doing it. And what's so great about that is that that mentality that they have, you know, they put down a substantial down payment, which is an option fee. It's not a, a deposit. Yep. So we'll get into that, but that's an option fee, which is non-refundable. But they have that mentality that they're buying the house. And again, most of them don't. But because they, they don't have the tenant mentality, the tenant mentality is, well, it's not my place. I don't really care. I don't have to clean the bathtub yeah. ever. You know, I've never seen <laughs> black bathtubs, but they exist uh-huh. <laughs> in tenant properties. But anyway, the idea is they're buying the place so they're going to keep it up. And they do. They keep it in good condition. Additionally, you know, they can't take care of all maintenance, repairs, all that kind of stuff because they're buying the property. So it's that mentality that I love that that they don't call me every time something goes wrong. (laughs) Uh It's amazing. But there are also other things that are great about the lease option, which, again, the option fee, depending on, on the property and depending on what you get down, but minimally you can get down $5,000. So uh, let's say a house you would normally let you, I know rent so much higher, but let's say you could rent it for $1,000. You'll get a $1,000 deposit, which a deposit by itself is potentially refundable. Whereas this option fee of say $5,000 in this instance is not refundable. It's applicable to their purchase if they buy, but if they don't buy, they break their contract and they leave the five thousand on the table. 
or whatever the amount is. So that's another thing that's that's just amazing about, you know, lease options. And, you know, when these people move on, they move on. Now, you know, I've got some lease option buyers that have stayed on for several years and, you know, you can charge them another option fee the following year or not. You can do whatever you want to do. But look, for me, as long as they're taking care of all their maintenance and repairs and, and you know, don't call me for anything, uh-huh. I'm happy. You're happy. <laughs> so you're selling these to, you know, what's called tenant buyers yes. uh, who might potentially buy the property. Are you buying them? Do you own these properties? Or are you also doing the same with the owner? Are you a tenant, a master tenant buyer that's then subletting? I am not. I buy these properties. Typically, I buy them subject to the existing mortgage. And, you know, what what that means for those who don't know is just that when a typical buyer buys a property, they get, say, title to the property and they get the mortgage. And it's two different things. Well, let's just say it this way. The bank does not own your property. The bank basically has a lien against your property. So you own it outright, at least here in Louisiana. Now, Tom, you can talk about the nation. I only know about Louisiana. Are you saying Louisiana is different than every other state, Linda? (laughs) Oh, a little bit, just a little bit. (laughs) But here you own your property outright. When you go to the active sale as a typical buyer, we don't get something that says it's a title. It says cash sale. Because even though you've got a mortgage, you took out a $200,000 mortgage to be able to buy the property, still the way things are here, you're paying cash for all property here. It's a cash sale. So that's your title. But anyway, the point of that is only that you own your property outright. All the bank has is a lien against it. That's that's the way in most places. They just, uh, the legal terminology might be a little different, but it's, you own the property, you have the title. The bank has a mortgage against a lien, which is a very powerful lien that basically isn't going to get wiped out unless it's paid off. Right. And so, uh, right. And so, when what happens when I so you can take your property then and sell it without paying off that mortgage and that's what I do I mean and, and you have to know how to do it yep. and so there is a technique it's not something that everybody can just run out and do unless they know what they're doing but anyway I buy I take title to the property and I use their mortgage I just pay their mortgage each month it's like an assumable mortgage of sorts you know it's not exactly an assumable but it's the same gotcha. same concept I see not technically assumable but you're taking you're buying the property and the deed comes into your name so you own it but Correct. you haven't paid off the lien, the mortgage. That's still sitting there. You effectively take their payment book and pay. Not that anyone's That's exactly not right. using payment books anymore, but you know what I mean. Electronic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you sure the electronic payment book is done. And <laughs> now, wait a minute. I know there's going to be some people are listening going, oh, wait a minute. I know a little something about this. Isn't there a due on sale clause? Don't you have to pay off the mortgage when you sell the property? Well, there is a due on sale clause, and certainly in today's mortgages. And no, you don't. That just means that the bank has the right to call the loan due. And it doesn't mean that they will or they have to at all. And there are techniques, too, you can use to to mitigate or minimize that. But overall, no, the, the big thing to remember here is banks don't want real estate. They're not in the business of owning real estate. Banks are in the business of loaning money. That's what they want. They don't want to be a landlord. I don't want to be a landlord, you know? So banks certainly don't want people calling them when the toilet is stopped up at midnight. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, so no, banks don't want the property. They just want money. They want to loan money and make money on money. It's a contract issue, this due on sale clause, that if they want to, they can call it due because that's for the property, but they're not obligated to do it. And it's not like, and you're not breaking a law. It's just, it's a contract stipulation that lets them if they want to. 
if they want to. If they want to. But why on earth would they call a performing note due? Because that would be crazy. Exactly. Exactly. Problems to deal with. Why make more? Right. That's that's exactly right. So yeah, I mean you're you're right on point there. I had something I was going to say, but it escaped me. But yeah, they are not going to call it. I don't want to say they're not going to call it due. Loans have been called due. But look, as long as you're paying, that's the most. That's the thing that they're most interested in. But you always make sure you pay it. So. You are taking over these properties, leaving the existing mortgage in place. What do you normally pay to get a property then? Are you paying the person to, to buy it? Are you buying out their equity? What, how does the buy side work for you? Okay. So it just depends. Typically, I don't pay anything. But look, if they've got a whole boatload of equity and they need you know, 5000 2000 whatever dollars to move, and that's going to be the deal breaker for me. Well, I'll pay it. But typically, I don't pay anything. It's because it's typically somebody who's in a situation where they need to, you know, to move and move quickly. So, yeah, usually I don't pay. But sometimes it's not even it's really funny. Not all the time is anybody in a bad situation. Sometimes they just want to they want the convenience of somebody that can take their property, you know, and, and they're able to move on with their, their life. But anyway, it just depends on how much equity they have and how much equity they want from me. And, but it's all about numbers. All of real estate investing is about numbers. It's just numbers and you have to know your numbers. So, you know, if they've got a hundred thousand dollars worth of equity and they want, you know, $10,000, well, heck, that's, that's a lot better than even putting 20% down on any investment property. So, you know, maybe I'll give them a few bucks. You don't have to give them any money, but it, each deal is different as to what you do. Okay. So yes. you're, you have the property, you've got it under control, you're leaving the old mortgage in place. Over time, that property is appreciating. So you're the one gaining that value. Correct. Right, during the eventual resale. And how do you set up a resale price with the buyer? Is that determined when they first move in or, or is that determined when they decide to raise their hand and say, yeah, I want out, I want to sell, or I, I want to buy? Okay, well, let's start out. Typically, I'll do a one-year lease option agreement. So they've got one year to you know, buy the house or not, or, you know, that's when our contract ends. But it's, again, this is contract. So it's up to you how you want to set it up. If you want to set up a price in the beginning and say, all right, I'll sell you the house for, you know, 200,000, or if you want it to be the appraised value, if you think that we're in a highly appreciating market, if you're, you know, in, in an area, say like Phoenix or someplace where, you know, in a year from now, you could have another thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 or more in appreciation. Well, you might want to put in there that whatever the appraised value is at the time. But if you're in a market like mine, but we don't have high appreciating, I mean, we appreciate, but not quickly, like in in some of those, right, not right, not off the charts, then we'll, then I'll usually put a price. Now, the way I do it is, it depends on, on how much they put down. I mean, everything's about numbers, you know, so because don't forget the amount of money that they put down, you're applying that to the purchase. And also know that these people don't care about the purchase price. They don't care about that. They don't. They don't care about the purchase price. What they care about is monthly payment. And that's what most people care about is the monthly payment. So it it doesn't matter for the most part. The only thing that matters is that when the sale comes around is when the appraiser man comes knocking at the door, he really determines what the sales price is going to do. So if you've overpriced it, say for your for your buyer, you can always come down or apply those, apply those funds, those extra funds to their closing cost or you know, whatever you want to do. But 
so typically though, I do predetermine a price. And again, it all depends on how much they put down, you know, what I think the property is worth, what I think it'll be worth in a year from now. And, and those types of things is how I determine, you know, what the price is going to be. So your profit centers, Linda, are, I'm counting three of them. Up front, you're getting a payment at five grand or more, whatever it happens to be, for the tenant to move in. The tenant buys yes. and then you're getting paid. Then there's, there must be a spread every month yes. between Correct. what they're paying you for rent and what you owe on the mortgage that you've taken over subject to. Absolutely. So making the difference. And then there's a third payout at the end when if the tenant buyer decides to actually buy, there's a difference between what you originally bought it for and what you're now selling it for. So you're making another spread. Is that, are those the Bingo, three you got it. How you like that? Three profit <laughs> centers and I didn't pay anything for the property. <laughs> three profit centers. You didn't pay much for the property or anything. You're right. not doing any maintenance or you know, toilets or clog sinks or other nonsense because the tenant is acting like they own it because they're anticipating owning it someday. And if they leave it, they leave it in great condition. Many times better than it was because they painted and they've done, you know, because anticipation. But but they live in in better condition than it was when I sold it to them (laughs) on a lease option. And remember, all a lease option is, it's just a rental with the option to buy. But it is because of that option to buy all these other things like they're responsible for maintenance and repairs and such that makes it so sweet. Okay. Yeah. That's a beautiful setup. And you find these, you basically describe the same type of motivated sellers or the motivation behind sellers that most real estate investors are looking for. So That's exactly right. But you have a little more flexibility in terms of, you don't need a ton of equity, do you? No, you don't need it. It depends. You know, I typically, what I invest for is the spread, the monthly spread. So that's what I look for. It's not so much the purchase price. I just want to know what the note is and what I can, you know, lease option it for, how much spread I can make each month. Now, of course, the more equity, the better, but we are in in an appreciating market at the moment. So, you know, that's always nice when, you know, at the end, when you get a big payday and most of these do have equity, but they don't have to, but if they didn't have equity, when I bought it, they're going to have equity in the end. Yeah. So So all those three profit centers, you really care about that middle one, the difference between what you owe and how much you make, which is the classic landlord one. Well, there you go. And the other ones are beautiful icing on the cake. Beautiful icing on the cake, man. When you get that nice big paycheck, when you sell it, that's very cool. But that's not what I invest for because, you know, the market, just as markets go up, markets can come down. So if I'm investing for the equity and then I lose that equity because the, you know, the market comes down, well, then I haven't done anything. So if I, you know, but if I invest for that monthly spread, then I'm definitely going to make that money. And then of course, there's an option fee I make up front as well. Right. (laughs) You still have the first profit center. That's totally right. How many, you said many people do not actually wind up exercising their option to buy many tenants, tenant buyers. So kind of, it doesn't have to be exact, but what, what percentage? Well, I think it's in the eighties is the official percentage, but I usually go through three or four tenant buyers before one actually exercises their option to buy. Is it 80% do or do not actually buy? Do not. Do not. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that that crazy? They give you the money down. They take care of the property. They fix it up and then they flake out and move on. That's correct. Oh, and that then, you know, now again, at that end, you, there, you have 
at the end of that one-year agreement, you have different options that you can do. You can either charge, if they want to say, you know, let's say they're up, you know, and people buy lease option properties for many reasons, but let's say that it's a small business owner and they need to see, they need to have two years of tax returns for their business that shows a profit sure. before they're able to secure a mortgage because that's what the mortgage company has to have. So they can't get a mortgage and buy that property until they've had two years of positive tax returns. So they may need another year. If they need another year, well, they can, because remember that first year contract, once it's over, it's over, Yeah, it's finished. So they can put down though, if they still want the property, they can put down another option fee, another however much money. And look, it's your contract. You can do anything you want. If there's a lot, I mean, you can change anything in there. If there's a lot of equity in it, you could apply their, their first option fee as well as their new one to it. It's your contract. You can make it any way you want, but it depends on your equity, you know, the sales price and, you know, just so many different things. But for whatever, ease here. Whatever two yeah. parties will agree to, you can make a contract for. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you can do anything you want, but typically you can collect another option fee and then, you know, give them another year on the property. Or you can just, as long as they're paying each month and they're taking care of the place, you can just let it continue going because they're in that mentality that they're going to buy the place and yeah. they're still going to take care of it. And they're still not going to call me at midnight about the toilet, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, gotcha. no, so. it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. Walk, walk me through some typical numbers, just an average property. What, how much are you buying it for? You know, all, and then all the numbers and then what do you wind up renting it out on a rent to own basis? Well, I usually, you know, I mean, every property is different yeah. as to I'm looking at my files here, trying to think of, um, I mean, I could pull any one, they're all different, but most of the ones that I buy are what I call bread and butter properties. I don't want anything that's real high priced and I don't do the slums, you know, and look, there's money in both of those. Yes. But for me, I do bread and butter properties. So I typically will buy something, say between yeah, 150 is a little low these days, but you know, let's just say between 150 and 250, somewhere up in there is where I like to say, maybe even up to 300. But I like to stay because there's there's a broader base of buyers in that uh, sweet spot here in our market. So more people can afford a house between say 150 and two and 300. More people can afford a property there than can afford half a million or more. Yep. So I want to be where I have the most potential to sell it on a lease option or, you know, to someone. So, so that's typically where I stay. And I like to have, if I can get about 500 a month spread in today's market, that's pretty easy to do, but I have taken, you know, a two or $300 a month spread long ago. That doesn't work anymore. Yeah. I mean, there's the spreads are usually more than that now, but, right. but I have taken a $200 a month spread. If it doesn't cost me anything, yeah. And I'm making 200 bucks a month, you know, okay. 200, it's 200, 2,400 bucks at the end of the year, you know, that I didn't have before. So. Yeah. But don't forget that when you buy it, even though I buy it for nothing, I'm still probably going to have to make that first month's payment before I'm able to get a lease option buyer in there, you know, depending on the time of the month that I buy it and what you know, payments they've made and, and so forth. Sometimes my sellers will even make that month's payment, you know, I mean, it's, uh, they're all different and, but a lot of fun too. You know, it's fun to see what people will do and it's amazing. But, uh, 
But anyway, so, you know, 200 bucks a month is only $2,400 at the end of the year, the first year. And if I've got to make one month's payment, you know, I don't know, say that's $1,200 or, or whatever it is, that's half of my profit. I've got to wait half the year to get that back. Of course, once I put that lease option buyer in, I, I get that option fee and the first month's rent, which there is another profit center in there that we didn't talk about that I that's forgot fun. to tell you about. Well, is that I usually get higher than monthly, than market rent rather. So say market rent's 1200 I can usually charge 1400 1300 maybe even a little bit more than that for their monthly payment because I give them what's called monthly rent credits. So anyway, I give them monthly rent credits. And what I tell them is, all right, so let's say market rent's 1200 but I'm able to charge them 1400 And I give them 200 a month and I apply that to their purchase at the end of the year as well. So, but what I tell them that is for them taking care of all maintenance and repairs. Okay. That's a trade-off, you see. Okay. And so now I add that to the price of my house. So say the house was worth 200,000, they gave me 10,000 down and I'm giving them 200 a month in monthly rent credits. That's 10,000 plus 20, I mean, uh, what, 4,800, let's just call it 5,000. So I'm sure. raising the price of my house by $5,000. Is that right? Two? No, 2,400. 2,400. Anyway. Right. 200 a month, 2,400. Okay. Yeah. So I'm raising the price of my house by the 10,000 and the 2,400. So I'm going to raise it by, you know, I'm going to charge them an additional maybe thirteen dollars to $15,000. Again, they don't really care about the price of the house. That's not what's, and the only thing that I have to look out for is when the appraiser comes, when they go to get their mortgage. Their mortgage company will send out an appraiser because yep. the mortgage company wants to protect their investment and they want to make sure it really is worth whatever it is that I'm selling it for. Boy, today, that's not an issue. But right. <laughs> you can sell for almost anything today. Yeah. But anyway, the okay. appraiser comes out and then goes, it reports back to the bank how much the property is worth. Okay. And then at that point, you're able to sell it to them and the rent credits, that the down payment plus the rent, the, the amount that you've credited every month that basically effectively becomes the ultimate end buyer's down payment. Well, yes, the option fee is definitely their, their down payment, but the rent credits, again, I just add all this to yeah, the price know. of the house. So okay. you're compensating for it, even though, I mean, they're building it up like a deposit, but you're not losing anything anyway, because you're compensating by pushing the price up equally. You say it so <laughs> succinctly, Tom. <laughs> Make sure I understand it, Linda. Yes. <laughs> Good. Okay. We'll understand it perfectly. Oh. Interesting. So those, that's and fantastic. So it's just profit centers. It's more profit. all profit centers <laughs> everywhere. You and I love it. Again, being a single gal, uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's it's so much easier for me to deal with things like this than to deal with just regular rental tenants. You know, they're they're like dealing with children. Been there, done that, had my kids. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't want to deal with it anymore. So let's talk about that for a minute, being a single gal. What's it like as a single gal being an investor? I know you, this is probably one of the reasons you like this technique so much, but what was it like? What's it like out there? Well, I mean, it's no different than any other investor. It's, you know, I'm a pretty independent kind of girl, but it's not, no different. It's just trying to find the, the right strategy for me. And this works for me because, again, I don't want to keep going out there and being bothered by all these people and, you know, all this stuff. So that's why the lease option works so well for me. But but it's no different being a single gal. 
you know, I mean, you don't take your husband or your wife out with you. I'm sure you don't take <laughs> your wife out with you when you're looking at property. So it really doesn't make any difference. It's no different. It's just, you know, just my life. I totally get it. I agree with you. It's just amazing <laughs> why people think that, you know, they're in a different group or different category. Everything ought to be different. It's we're investors first and foremost. Right. I mean, it, it's really no different. But but like I said, because I guess you could call me a lazy investor or one that just doesn't <laughs> want to be bothered. <laughs> That's why I picked this strategy. Uh, you found me. a strategy that fits your personality type. That's what's more important. I mean, that's one of the reasons I focus so much on wholesaling because I know long term I'm going to tune out. You know, I'm going to kind of ADD sets in and I, I, I start to lose interest in the project. So I got to be careful. I better be done in 30 to 60 days. I because if it's going to be, if you tell me I got a year, I might not be able to stay focused long enough. Ah, okay. I got you. Well, yeah. And look, and that's another thing me from my age, I'm, I'm 64. So I certainly don't want to be out there, you know, taking care of all this stuff. I want, I want it easy in my life. <laughs> if I were a young, well, look, if I were a young man and I've got two, I say young sons, one's going to be, you know, one's almost 40. My yeah. oldest is almost 40. But anyway, yeah. if I were... <laughs> And they've got properties. But if I were a young man, I wouldn't mind going out there doing things that need to be done, you know, unstopping toilets or tubs or whatever. But I don't want to do that. I mean, I, you know, I just don't want to. And, you know, especially at my age, I don't want to be out there doing those, those types of things, you know. So, you know, that has something to do with it as well. Gosh, that makes sense. So, Linda, for mm-hmm. people that are listening going, wow, that is exactly what I need. I totally relate with Linda. That is, that's me. How do you think about it in lease options? Is it any different than any other sort of investing? Lease options? No. I mean, it's a great, you know, lease options is a great way to invest. You can buy on a lease option, as you alluded to in the beginning. And you can sell on a lease option. You can sell on a lease option. Yeah. I like what you do. I'd rather take it over subject to that way you actually own it. I think it's unstable to not do it. I know, you know, there's two things that my attorneys don't like buying on a lease. They don't like sandwiching yourself in. But is it... To do that, to go get subject twos and sell them on on a, a lease with an option to buy, is it? That's what you do. Is it difficult? Is there anything different? It's no different than any. You know, it's no different than any other type of investing. All this, you know, what it all comes down to is marketing. <laughs> if you know how to market, you can sell or buy anything or whatever yeah. the case is, and you just have to continually market. If you're on the market for properties, then you need to market for them. It's just that simple. Everything, everything's about marketing. I mean, you know, I mean, who, who is it that does what tell people, who is it that does the marketing during the Super Bowl, the most expensive commercials at all? Budweiser? Uh, Coca-Cola? Oh yeah. It's all the big companies, all the names you expect. Yeah. Now, why, why do you think that they're paying all this, all this money, the most expensive commercials during the, that there are during the Super Bowl? Why would they pay that? I mean, don't you know who Coca-Cola is and Budweiser? Sorry. And the reason is because if they quit marketing, People will forget who they are. Yeah. So Budweiser will no longer be on top. Then it's going to be, I don't know, Miller Lite or whatever, yeah, whoever else is guy. there. <laughs> and Coca-Cola won't be on top. It'll be Pepsi-Cola Pepsi. or vice yeah. versa, whatever, you know. So that's why they these big, big companies continue to market. And even though everybody in the United States knows who these companies are, they continue to market. And, and you need to do the same thing. That's what I tell people. You need to do the exact same thing. Exactly. I mean, of course, you can't can't afford a Super Bowl commercial, but you can continue <laughs> to do your marketing and you should, because if you don't, people won't know who you are and they'll forget about you. Exactly. You can afford letters and postcards. It's a lot right. cheaper than Super Bowl commercials. 
And then, you know, use what you, you got, you know, when, when you're buying subject to one of the things that the sellers sometimes will ask, well, how, they'll ask, well, how do I know you're going to make that monthly payment? Because after all, this loan is still in my name. And, you know, one of the things that I use is my credibility and everybody's got to use what, what they have, but because I'm a real estate broker. So, you know, some look, I could lose my license if I, you know, do something that is illegal or, or wrong or whatever. Mm-hmm. Additionally, I'm an investor and I'm, I'm well capitalized and I, um, you know, I'm going to put money into this property. I'm using this property to make money. Why would I ever not make the payment? If I don't make the payment, it's going back to the bank. So this was all for naught. So it, it doesn't make any sense for me to, to buy a property and not make the payment. But that is one thing I want to tell people is that if, if you are going to buy a property subject to, make sure that you do have a couple of bucks behind you. I'm not saying you have to have a million dollars, but you're going to you know, at least have a couple of months that if you're without a tenant buyer or even a tenant for that matter, make sure that you're able to make that payment because that's what it, that is what you have promised your the person that you bought from the seller that you purchased it from and that's important it's very important to me that i make it on time and i just set it up in my bank account where these payments come out automatically it's automatic there's no you don't have to remember to send in a check every month it's right yeah. right and i don't go collecting checks from my tenant buyers either another thing i do is i set them up with a bank account it's my bank account in my name but i set it up for them sometimes i'll have two tenant buyers on the same bank account, but I give them the account number. They put their their money in, they go to the bank, put it in each month, and then I withdraw the money out each month. And I just leave just enough money, you know, a couple of bucks in there to keep the account alive. But what I tell them is that, you know, when they go to get their mortgage at the end of the year, if they do, well, it's not me saying they paid on time. It's not them saying they paid on time. It's documented by, you know, an uninterested third party, which is the bank. So it's shown right there when they made their payment. So, and look, and I can set it up at their bank account, whatever is most, their bank rather, whatever bank is most convenient to them. Maybe there's a bank near where they work, where they like to do their banking, or maybe there's one near their home. I don't know. I don't care. I'll set up an account there. (laughs) I mean, it's really easy. Just an account, that way you get paid and yeah, they get the benefit of it as well. And they can do their banking whatever way they want to. You know, some people do a lot of online banking. Some people, you know, with the young people with their phones, they, they bank with their phones and, <laughs> and other people physically go over to the bank and, and do it there. So whatever floats their boat doesn't matter to me. But and I let them pick the bank. It's my account. I go open it up in my name or my entity's name. Yeah. And the only thing that they're allowed to do is put money into the account. They can't so, say What's that? Right, they cannot take out right, because it's primarily because it's in the name of my entity. I mean, they're not allowed. They can't cash any checks or do anything. So, again, I watch for it when they put the money in. I just go online and, and draw the money out, send it yeah. to a different account. Yeah, pretty easy, and that way I don't, I don't have to chase checks either. So, yeah. and then they know I know what's going on. You know? Yeah, and they can't say the checks in the mail. Gotcha, because it's yeah, it's either in the <laughs> bank or it's not. No nonsense. Right, right. But they're motivated to put it in the bank and and to pay on time because I tell them this is how, and it may not be exactly true, but this is one of the things that the bank looks at to see if you are making your payments on time. I don't think the bank really looks at it. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but it's there if they do, if the bank wants to see if they've made their monthly payments on time. 
because banks used to send out letters to the landlords, you know, have they made their payments on time each month right. and stuff, but I don't think they really do that anymore. Oh, they can look if they want. Yeah. If the underwriter is interested, they can look. <laughs> That's exactly right. But that motivates, though, my tenant buyer to pay on time. Yeah. And so, you know, because like I said, it's there, it's documented. And additionally, they lose their monthly rent credits for any month that they don't pay on time. Uh -huh. then they lose that month's rent credits. So you remember how I give them a couple of bucks a month? Yeah. Uh, you know, I raise the, the monthly rent up a couple. Of, if they don't pay on time, they, so that 200 bucks a month, if they don't pay, not only are they charged a late fee if they're not, you know, paid on the fifth, um, but they also lose that month's rent credit. So there's lots of reasons. They're very motivated to pay on time. And I'm very clear about things when, when I set this up with them. And, and they agree to it all. Yeah. You know, I said, if you don't pay on time, not only are you losing, you know, late fee, you're losing your monthly rent credit. And the tenant buyers are very motivated to pay on time because I give them lots of incentives. I give them lots of carrots to pay on time. So that's, you know, one of the little tricks of the trade. Some, you know, something, you know, you would consider doing if you're going to do a lease option. Yeah. You know, give them lots of incentives to pay on time. Because I don't like late payers, you know. I'm totally with you on that. I don't like that. <laughs> And now, just to clarify that, if they don't pay on time in a given month, do they only lose that month's rent credit or do you wipe out all the previous ones? I wasn't. Again, it's your contract. You can do what you want. And I've done it both ways, but I want to keep them on the hook. Yeah. So that's why I don't wipe out the entire option fee or anything, which I've, I've done before, but I've just found that's not the best practice for me anyway. I want to right. keep them with an incentive because if they miss one month early on in the contract, and it wipes everything out, all their gains, and all the carrots are gone for the rest of the year. So I do it on a month-by-month -month basis. Yeah. So, you know, but again, it's your contract. You can do it whatever way you want. Again, I used to do that. I'd say no more rent credits or, or your option fee. You've broken your contract. You know, your, that means your option fee is no longer applicable to the to the purchase, but you know, I found it, it disincentivizes them sometimes. Okay. So, which is, I guess in, in some ways, I don't want to say it's a moot point, but it's if 80% of them are not buying the property <laughs> anyway, then it literally was a carrot on a stick and they, they lose interest in the carrot. But right. I mean, I the want stick. them to continue to take care of the place and yeah. not think that, well, it's just a rental now because yeah. I've lost all of these incentives. So I don't care. I want them to care. And so, you know, that's why I do it that way. Yeah, totally get it. I think this is interesting. You know, I'm sure people are going to ask, well, why would you? Why would anyone do that? Why would they uh, rent a property for all the time, think they're going to buy it, put money into it, fix it up, and then never buy it? But that happens all the time. But what all the time. You've seen why they don't do it. It's the same reason why people always rent. Some people just never buy. But I think we need to hear it from you. Well, you know, I mean, that's that's it. I mean, uh, how do they say the zebra never changes its stripes or, right. or something like that? So <laughs> if their issue, depending on what, what their issue, if their issue is credit because they've got bad credit, they're always excited in the beginning. Oh, yes, I'm going to work on my credit. I'm going to get, well, they never do. They don't. <laughs> I mean, and I used to really work to try and help them with their credit. You know, refer them to either a mortgage lender, which will, which would help if they're not too busy. They'll tell them, you know, what they need to do, what things they need to pay off. And this doesn't cost them anything, but uh, it would, um, a mortgage broker doesn't charge them anything to do that, to, you know, run their credit and, and see what issues they need to resolve, but they never did it. 
and or I would, you know, refer them to a credit report or repair agency that would help them repair, but they just don't. They just don't. So again, it depends on what their issue is. If they're a, a small business owner, and again, as I said earlier, they need two years of positive income tax returns. Well, you know, they might go through with it, but they just have all sorts of excuses. I mean, I, you know, it's hard to get in their heads as to why they would do it, but they do it all the time. And maybe they just think that they're going to do what they, in the beginning, they're excited, I think. And they, they just feel like, I guess it's like going to the gym. I'm going to go to yeah. the gym and lose that. <laughs> 10 pounds or whatever it is. I'm going to join a gym and I'm going to go every day. I think it's the same thing. In the beginning, they're excited, but over time, they just go back to their old habits. Yep. I think that totally makes sense. Now, Linda, there are, oh, if I guess we simplify it, there's three types of investors, beginner, intermediate, advanced. Yes. For the levels that they're at. And there tend to be walls in between those. You know, a beginner comes up, but then hits a wall. But if they push through, they're advanced. But eventually, they'll hit a wall before they're, you know, for, for every level. So beginner, intermediate, advanced. What advice do you have for investors in general and investors at each one of those three levels? I can give you some good advice. I think it's fear that holds people back from breaking that wall. So what I, you know, I do coach a few people occasionally. And, and what, what I tell them is go out and know that you're going to get 10 no's. Today or tomorrow or next, or however long it takes you. No, just go out there because you want to get your 10 no's. I mean, that's what you're going out there to give me my no's. And I mean, it makes you fearless because you're going in. Yes, I'm going to get my no's. I'm going to bring Linda back my 10 no's. And that's what you do. I mean, go find your no's. And then you got your 10. I'm like, okay, great. Go get another 10 because eventually you're going to get a yes. But that's it. But, but if you're going in saying, oh, please, will you sell me your house? You know, I mean, oh, I, you know, why would somebody sell me their house for nothing? I don't understand it. No, 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 no. That's the wrong mindset. Go get your nose. <laughs> get them out the way. And <laughs> I'm a broken record saying that with my students to the point where, but I'm, guys, I'm serious. Everyone thinks it's a little odd. But no, you've got to be perversely addicted to being told no, because the more no's, the closer you are to the yes. Absolutely. But I mean, if you're excited, if that's your mission to go out and get your nose, yeah. then that's, you know, and then when somebody says, yeah, well, you got to be prepared because somebody will say yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're like, going to be shocked. <laughs> but, <laughs> don't be too shocked. But but anyway, I mean, you know, we go over all sorts of things, you know, that, that you can, you know, say to people and all that. But it's really, it's just another tool in your toolbox, as they say. Yeah. It's another strategy to, to learn because, A lot of times when you've got your marketing machine going and you're going out and you're talking to these people, and if it's not, say, if you're into flipping or if you're, you know, whatever your strategy is that you're doing, if it doesn't match up with your strategy, you don't know what to do with it and it just goes away. You wasted that lead. So if you know you can potentially wholesale it or rent it or lease option it or, you know, flip it or, you know, sell the note or do whatever. I mean, just there's so many different strategies that you can do with with real estate. You know, it's just those are all the different tools that you can use. And so you need to learn new tools. But the one thing that I tell people is that take a strategy and learn it. One strategy. When I first started doing this, my mind, as I said, was just blown. It was like, pow, pow. Tom Z says wholesale, pow. This, uh, you know, Robin Thompson says uh, flip houses, pow. You know, this person, (laughs) like so many, I mean, because it's amazing. It truly is amazing. All these things that you can, it's, it's almost unlimited. 
things you can do with real estate, investing strategies that you can use. So, but take one strategy and learn it, you know, focus on one strategy. Don't get caught up in trying to do a million different strategies, learn your strategy, put it in your toolbox. Now, you know it, you understand it. You've done it once, twice, three or four times. So now it's in your toolbox. Now go for a different strategy and learn that one. Go for your nose. Go yep. find your nose out there. Get those out the way because the yes is somewhere over there, but go get your nose. That's what I'm saying about for to Look for your nose. I think that it, is, you know, because you, know, you said that at the beginning, the, as soon as you start learning things, it was so much learned and it was different and it's exciting. It's like being in a, you know, you're the classic kid in a candy, in a candy store. You know, yep. There's all these, and, but if you try to eat them all, you'll get a stomach ache. Amen. Uh, so find something yep. you like and focus on that. And I think that's, that's actually good news for people. I tell people when they come to our, our traction rear meetings, just look, we're going to cross train. You're going to learn a lot of different things. Some things you're going to say, that's totally awesome. I could see myself doing that. Well, great. Follow that and learn more. Other months you're going to go, you know, that was interesting, but I could never see myself doing that. You should be happy because now you know what road not to go down. Because well, that's true. there's things you like, there's things you don't and find that. So you're basically saying, Linda, match it to your personality type and what you like. And I learned it and did it. I mean, just go out and do it. The first time I did it, I'm not going to lie, I was scared. And I mean, I was afraid. And and the girl asked me for references or she'd asked me if I've ever done it before. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm with a bunch of investors that do it all the time. So it wasn't exactly a lie, but it was kind of sort of, you know, it wasn't exactly (laughs) the whole truth. Uh And um, I don't know. I don't remember she asked for references or not, but she did ask that question. And I kind of fudged it and she bit and you know, and I went with it. So, uh, but I was scared the first time, you know, I was scared the first time it happened. <laughs> and um, yeah, so, but now it's easy. Once you do it, once, to, every time you do it, one more time, it gets even easier. easier, easier. And it's like nothing now, you know, I just throw it out there to people. It's very soft shoe. Look, if, if it doesn't work out for them, I said, look, I can take over. You can walk away today. I can take over your property. You know, I can just take over the mortgage payment and you can walk away. It's real easy if you'd like to. That's no big deal. And that's another thing in real estate investing. I know we're at the end here, but you have to be able to walk away. You know, if somebody says no or, or whatever, you have to be, I don't want to say the least interested, but but you can't be afraid if they say no. You just have to be able to walk away. Okay, there's another one right around the corner. Another no or another yes. I think people have a hard time with that. There's a desperation. I have to do a deal. I want to do a deal. I got to do my next deal, my first deal, my third deal, whatever. And then they, it shows, and that desperation chases away the seller. Yes, yes. And that's why if they go in with no expectation, expecting a no, that I'm mean, not really expecting a no, but going to say, okay, well, you know, they're probably all going to say no. So that's cool. It takes that pressure off of them. They're relaxed because they're just going to get a no. And that's no big deal. It's no big deal to get a no, right? It's just a no. You'll move on. Yeah. So it takes that fear out of the investing and learn the different strategies so that you know what to do with them. Look, if you don't want to, if you don't want to deal with a deal, but you know, it's a deal wholesale, you know, I mean, sell it to somebody who does know or enjoy doing that. You know, if say you don't have the money to do a flip and this one really needs to be flipped and you don't have the mean or you don't know anybody who has money or you can't borrow the money, whatever the case is, you just don't want to fool with flips, wholesale the deal. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple, but, but if you learn these strategies and what they are, maybe they're not something that you'll want to do on a regular basis, but if you know who to wholesale them to, then 
I mean, wholesaling should always be part of your your strategy because if you've got your marketing machine going, there's going to be deals that you don't want to fool with because they don't fit, you know, like you said, your personality or what you like to do. So wholesale to somebody who does like right. to do that. And strategy. your criteria, but surely, you know, someone else whose criteria it does fit because a good deal is a good deal. It just may not be the right deal for you right now. Right. And you know what? I give a lot of deals away to people, too, you know, because I've got friends and, you know, and and you know what? They send me stuff, too. So we do a lot of that, too. And that's what's the great great thing about these RIA meetings is you are socializing, if you will, with all these other real estate investors who, I mean, God, I I love nothing more than to talk shop with all these people. It's just, you know, that's my deal. I love talking shop. (laughs) Yeah, it's awesome. But, and you know, and you exchange ideas all the time. And, and like I said, if this, you know, deal may be in their neck of the woods, it's closer to them. I don't try and do too many deals that are more than an hour away from me, you know, because I, I don't, again, I'm a lazy real estate investor, <laughs> you know, and guess what? There are deals in everybody's backyard. You don't have to go far to find them. And, and I hear that a lot too. Oh, well, you know, there's probably deals over here, but you know what, you know, way over there. I'm like, why would you go way over there? I mean, market right here. They got plenty of deals here. Well, uh, expand that point, Linda, because I hear that all the time too. The deals are always somewhere else. The grass is always greener over there in that always. town, on that side of the fence, on that side of the state line. It's almost like they don't want to look. They don't want to get their nose in their local area because maybe it's easier to say, well, I'm just not where it is. So I agree. You agree. The deals are where you are, wherever you are. They are. Because there are distress. You know what? All this is, is about people and their problems, at least for me, what my, you know, my strategy is, we're just dealing with people with problems. And I look at myself as a problem solver. You know, this person has a problem, whatever it may be. It doesn't have to be a financial problem. Like on one house, I bought the girl. She just wanted to follow her boyfriend to Houston. He took a job in Houston. And she wanted to be with him and she didn't want to be bothered with the house. So I picked it up subject to real easy, you know? So that was, she just wanted to be done. That was her problem. So it doesn't have to be financial. It can be all sorts of problems, but you know, it could be divorce. It could be health problems. It could just, just a, a myriad of problems. And that's all you're doing is you're solving people. You're an easy solve for people, yep. you know, at least for subject to it's easy for them to walk away. That's beautiful that way. Now that's, so I think there's good advice there for all levels. What about intermediate and advanced? Is there, what do you do as you've grown as an investor? How do you bust through those, those ceilings, those walls you hit on the way up? I don't know it exactly. I mean, I would, I wouldn't think it would be necessarily so hard, except, you know, one of the things that um, I think at least for me is at what point am I satisfied? Do I need or want? you know, more properties. And I think that's, uh, that's one of the things I deal with, Mm -hmm. struggle with, if you will, if is, do I really need more properties? I mean, (laughs) I've got, you know, plenty enough money coming in. You know, I'm not a young girl. I'm not, yeah, I'm not as, I'm not as motivated as I used to be. I mean, that's, that's true. When I was young and hungry and I mean, I could have amassed a million properties, but, but not as much anymore. So I don't know what, uh, you know, to, really get up to that that higher level of, you know, uh, I mean, I'm certainly an advanced investor, but but that is one of the things, what point do I say enough is enough? I mean, what's your advice on that? You know, it's interesting. I think if we expand what you just said is what is right for you and when is enough enough? Because I don't, I think some people just want to judge it by the numbers. I need to have a thousand properties or 500 properties or hundred, but does that really matter? 
I think at the end of the day, you need to look at what is your personal goal? What is it that you are after and the lifestyle that you want to have? And then you just work backwards from that goal. If that means 10 properties, that's okay. If that's right. eight properties, that's okay. If it's 500 properties, well, I guess that's okay for you, but good luck. And then right. you're, you're going to have a headache. That sounds like a job to me when people get to that level. So I agree. I think it's interesting as the advanced investor is sometimes also understanding it's okay. And it doesn't need to be a purely ego-driven drive to have more and more properties. Because a lot of times, honestly, Linda, all I've seen is people have more and more headache because they're chasing that number rather than chasing the result, that the reason they're in it to begin with. And I think people lose right. their reason why sometimes in the, the rush to let their ego brag. Well, then there you go. I mean, that that is it. I mean, I told you I'm a bit of a lazy investor. I don't want, I don't want, I want an easy life. You yeah. know? There's nothing wrong with that. It's kind of, it's lazy, not lazy. I mean, you're saying lazy, but it's, yeah. and yet it's you're just, willing to go and put up with the nose. It's just, you, you don't want to be a hyperactive investor. You don't want to have to go fix toilets. You don't need your phone ringing all the time. Oh, no, 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 no. You I don't, don't want, want anything. Yeah. You want your life. Not, I want, I value my freedom. Yep. more than than being tied to all these properties all the time. And, you know, but I think society kind of, and even real estate investors, we get into, you know, society, I guess, kind of says that the more you have, the better, but the more you have, the more you have to be accountable for and take care of. And, and I'm like, I don't know that I want more, you know, at some point, you know, all of my life needs are taken care of and my, you know, for the most part, my desires. Now, look, I don't have a million dollar yacht. But I don't want a million dollars. That's one more thing I got to take care of. Sounds like a lot of work. It is. I don't want all of that. But, you know, travel, I enjoy traveling. I want to be able to buy what I want to buy, when I want to buy it. And I'm comfortable there. And that's that's where I'm at. So, yeah, I don't, I mean, and, and I do what I do when I want to do it. I don't feel like I have to constantly look for properties. You know, when I want to, I do. That's yeah, just I, where I'm at, you know? I, I ask students at my implementation bootcamp to identify with one of two things. They said, would you rather have 100 pennies or four quarters? Because when you start thinking about it, they go, well, Tom, the value is the same. Like, well, the value is the same of 100 pennies and four quarters, except to me, it's very different. Four quarters is a lot easier to manage than a pocket full of copper. <laughs> so what are you after? Are you after the value? Do you, I mean, are you going to brag that you got a hundred or something? I'd rather brag that I got four of something that's worth the same amount. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And that's, that's how I feel about things. I just don't, I don't want all those uh, problems. The more you have, the more problems you're going to have. There we go. So anyway, I mean. I think uh, you got a great setup, Linda. Awesome. I do too. I'm happy with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I want to thank you. I think excellent interview. Excellent advice to people, you know, getting out there, making it happen, go get your nose. I think that's everyone's task for today is go, go get, get your, your nose, nose. <laughs> and be happy about it. Say, so yes, I'm going to get, because it just makes you feel better yeah. knowing you're just going to get your nose rather than that you're scared to death to get your yes. Yep. You're going to get a yes. Of course, you're going to get a yes because you're a problem solver. That's all it is. You just got to look at yourself as a problem solver. It's totally yeah. awesome. Answer Linda, to their prayers. It is indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Thank Thanks for your candor. Thanks for your openness. Thanks for describing a, I think, a, an exciting and unique niche that a lot of people are going to relate to and put in their toolbox for when it works. That's totally awesome. awesome. Thanks for listening. Your next step is to visit gettractionpodcast.com. Happy wholesaling. <laughs>